Let's dive into God's Word. You're going to need your handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, and we can begin. We are in part 87 of our Being Jesus series, and I entitled today's message, A Lonely Garden. I also entitled it, I Surrender All, because I have difficulty making decisions. If you have two titles, why not just shove them together and make it one, right? Now, you have the opportunity today to enter into a story of Jesus Christ's most intimate moment on record, something that is very precious and private to him, something that shows his intense humanity. I want us to remember that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And sometimes we lean either way. Either we think he's just a man and we don't think he's a big enough deal or we think he's fully God and that nothing was a problem for him. And the answer is, yeah, it's in between, right? I mean, it's all of that. It's both. It's that he fully felt the limitations of humanity so that he might live an example for us. He set aside all that super stuff so that he could engage with his people and be the sacrificial lamb for us. He knew he was going to the cross, but that didn't mean it was easy. But yet he's so much more than that, right? I mean, he's the son of God. He is the uncaused cause that in the beginning he was. He was with God. He was God. And yeah, he became flesh and dwelt among us. How does all that work? I have no idea. But it's awesome. So what we're going to study through is a special time, a time of his greatest hurt, his greatest weakness, the most pain and uncertainty he ever had. And I hope that it blesses you. We want to begin by, I'm going to direct your attention to the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you as I just bring up a couple points. I think we have an alignment problem. I think we have an alignment problem in our prayer life. I don't think we want what God wants. And I, and I think that because of that, there's a disconnect. I think that we don't understand prayer. I think in many ways we don't use prayer rightly. I, I think that in many ways we bought into garbage and lies from the enemy. I think that, that in a lot of ways we're afraid that God is not all about our will. And I would agree with you. I think that there's some things that we don't pray about because we don't think they're a big deal to God. And some of them, maybe they're not. You're right. But some of them, maybe they are. The one that bothers me the most is the lie that says that when we're in trouble or when we have sinned or when we screw up or when we're bad, run away from God. I think that we need to answer this question most importantly, is God good? God is always good. But I don't know if we believe that. You know, we say uh, silly, kind of stupid phrases as Christians, being trying to be funny, and sometimes Christians aren't funny, to be, to be kind of funny about, the, we'll say things like this, dude, you don't want to pray for patience, man. Man, if you pray for patience, God's going to blow you up, right? Isn't that what we say? Man, you don't want to pray for humility because then God's going to get all over you and knock you out, right? The problem with those concepts, the problem with those jokes is that it seems to give the idea that God's waiting to smash us. 
I think that it's almost like God's going, dude, just pray the wrong prayer. I'm all over you, you know? And that's not right. Is God good? God, God is fully good. Um, now, we want a God that sifts and filters our prayers. Because that's what good dads do, right? I mean, I, I know I've probably said this a lot, but I want to keep pounding that into our minds. We, we want God to filter what we're asking of him. Because sometimes we ask stuff that's going to hurt us. We want him to be a good enough dad to go, no way, I'm not giving you that. You know, if my 11-year-old is like, Dad, I would like an AK-47 for Christmas. All the guys are like, oh, that's funny. Okay, for all the ladies, that's a gun. <laughs> it's a machine gun, just to let you know. Uh, I, I mean, is it okay for, well, Father, I'd like plastic explosives. I'd like... If we're asking for dumb stuff, our dad should be able to go, no, we're not doing that. But I also believe that when we ask for certain things, he even wants what's better for us. And I think that when we sin, when we're, when we're crushed, when we're, when we're angry and we lash out and we do bad things, I think the idea of running away from God doesn't even make sense because where else are you going to go? Where are you going to find the grace you're looking for? Well, who else has forgiveness for you? Who else is going to be kind and gentle and patient and walk with you? Where else are you going to run? What are you going to run, what, to yourself? You're your own worst enemy. Don't you want to run towards someone that can actually fix the situation? But I think we worry if God is good. I think we worry if he wants the best for us. I think we worry that he's holding out on us. I think that we worry that in some ways he's restricting or limiting us or in some way he doesn't fully love us and nothing could be further from the truth. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. The father's will is best. The father's will is best. Many times we don't want to pray thy will be done because we're afraid that the answer is going to be something horrific. But he is a good God and he wants what's right. Now, does his agenda trump ours? Yes. But don't you understand his agenda is our best and we have to remember that. Now, what we're going to do today is that we have a combo account. That means we're going to grab Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to shove them all together, pretend like they're in the same room talking to tell us this story. Now, John doesn't have a lot to say, which I find odd because many describe John as Jesus's best friend. And if you're talking about Jesus's lowest point and John was there, why wouldn't you write about it? Well, because John wrote last. Matthew, Mark, and Luke actually have a lot to say about it. And so John would have said, you know what? You guys have sufficiently covered that one. I don't have anything else to add to that. I got other stuff that I need to talk about. But we are going to combine all of them together, put it into kind of a color-coded account, and just read through it. So you're going to be looking at the screens a lot. But it begins where we left off last time. Jesus had just finished the Last Supper. Y'all remember the Last Supper, right? That's the one where he just stood there like this the whole time, right? You know, is that the, the picture, right? All the paintings always has really freaky people, and he's always doing this. So he just finished up that time. It was a special time with his disciples. He had all kinds of intense discussion. He just had this huge, long prayer time. 
And then he was wrapping up and he's like, guys, we got to go out to our other special prayer area. We got to get out of here. Well, as they're packing up and leaving, he has this discussion and this is how it sounds. And Jesus said to them, the disciples, hey, guys, when I sent you out like a while back, y'all remember when I sent you out for ministry? I was like, go out and preach the kingdom, cast out demons, remember? And he was saying, I want you to heal the sick. When I sent you out into all the surrounding villages with my power and authority, got a question for you. I didn't let you bring any supplies. Y'all remember that? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you didn't have a money bag or a knapsack or extra sandals, did you lack anything on that trip? In any way, were you without? And they said, uh, no, nothing. He said, all right, there's a reason for that, but now we're making a shift in gears. He said to them, but now things are going to get tougher. Let the one who has a money bag, yeah, you got to take that. One that has a knapsack, you got to take that. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture, Isaiah 53, 12, must be fulfilled in me. Quote, and he was, meaning the Messiah, and he was numbered with the transgressors. What does that mean? And the Messiah looked like one of the bad guys. That's what the verse means. For what is written about me has had its fulfillment. And they said, look, master, here, we got two swords. We've already been carrying these. And he said to him, great, that's good enough for now. All right, we got we to gotta clarify some of this. Maybe we're a little bit lost. I want you to picture what it's like hanging out with Jesus for three years. Does anybody know the concept of drafting? Now, I'm not talking about drawing. I'm talking about car racing, bicycle racing, that kind of thing, right? Drafting is this concept that someone is going to break the wind resistance and they create a space behind them where the wind has to go around them and so there's less resistance, right? So for example, you all see the birds flying in a V, right? And it's not because they want to see, right? They're just like, hey, your wing's in the way. And they're trying to all move out one over so they can see. You're not going to hit anything. You're in the sky, right? It's because it's breaking the resistance of the wind and it's making it easier. Then what happens is just like uh, in car racing, they have teams like in NASCAR. And so the car in the lead is eating up all the gas because they're pushing into the air and feeling all the resistance. Well, in order to conserve gas and balance it out, you'll have a teammate who's behind you kind of hanging out kick out to the front, they take the lead and everyone else gets a chance to chill out. In a, in a bike pack, if you ever see a pack running, you know, kind of rolling together, that's called a peloton. In the peloton, you always have somebody in the front that's kind of making that lead. Okay, so anyone behind them has less resistance that they're drafting. Okay, <laughs> everyone's going, what does this have to do with the Bible? <laughs> Trust me, NASCAR is important. No, I'm just kidding. That's not, that's not what I was saying. Here's, here's what I mean. The disciples were drafting off Jesus the whole time he was living here. Because here's the deal. Jesus was always in the Father's will, right? And whenever you hang out with him, you do what he does, you're in the Father's will. Seems real natural and easy. What happens if he goes away? 
Then you're like, oh, now I'm taking all the resistance and hits. Now I'm out in the lead. And he goes, yeah, guys, we're doing a shift here. It doesn't mean I'm not going to be with you. It doesn't mean I'm not sending the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that I'm not providing for you. What it means is I want you to kick out and I want you to take the lead. But it's not going to feel like it feels with me. Because when you're with me, we were like, hey, we don't have any food. And you're like, oh, what do we got? Well, we got a little happy meal. Oh, well, let's multiply it. Woo. And everybody's eating. He said, that's not normal. I understand for the last three years, that's kind of how your life has gone. But that's not how it's going to be moving forward. Things are going to get a lot harder. So I want you to understand you need to lock and load and get ready for this stuff. I need you to grab a couple things. And then he says something super weird. He said, and those of you that... If you don't have a sword, you got to sell your cloak and go buy one. What was that all about? First of all, let's clarify what kind of sword we're talking about. If you're not good with history, you picture it's Sir Lancelot with a six-foot broadsword, right? And that, it's, those are hard to hide in dresses. You don't understand what I'm saying when they were walking around it. They had daggers. They were hand daggers. And you go, well, I'm sure they were just opening SpaghettiOs. No, those are actually for defense, and you can kill someone with it, right? You're like... Well, why was he saying that they needed those? Everyone's like, well, Jesus is a pacifist, so everything's cool. First of all, two of his men apparently had a concealed carry permit because they already had two of them in their crew. And you're like, hey, where'd that come from? I know who had one of them. Who had one of them uh, actually would be, what, Simon Peter, because he's the one that ends up using his later on. He's got one, or somehow he grabs someone else's. But I'll tell you who I think was the other guy. The other guy was the zealot. Did you know there's a zealot on the team? That they would talk about and they'd describe all the disciples. One of them's described as a zealot. Do you know what that even means? That means a hyper-nationalist. That means somebody that's an extremist. That's all Israel all the time, and I will kill you if you stand in the way. Zealots were known for doing assassin work. So he has an assassin possibility on his team. He usually slept away from everyone, right? You're kind of like, I don't want to bunk with him. Why do I got to hang out with that guy? Something's wrong with that dude, right? So we now know two guys have swords. Why did he say that they needed them? Well, we got, I don't know, maybe at least two options on this. One, we could just be playing dress up. Here's why. There was a scripture that needed to be fulfilled in Jesus that said this, he looked like a bad guy. When they go to arrest him, we're going to find out that Peter's going to draw a sword and hack off a guy's ear. Now, that makes Jesus's team look like bad guys. That is a fulfillment of prophecy. And you go, wait, wait, wait. I thought that applied to when Jesus hung on the cross, there was two thieves on either side. And so whenever kids would be walking along, hey, mom, what are those guys hanging there for? She would say, well, those are the bad guys, honey. That's why they're there. Do you understand that the prophecy was fulfilled in all that? Hmm. Either we're playing dress up or he was trying to explain, guys, there's some heavy stuff going down coming up and we're going to need some defense. He was probably talking spiritual defense. But sure enough, they got pretty practical. All right. It says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out from the Jerusalem area with his disciples following him across the brook Kidron. Now, the way that it works is that you got Jerusalem on one hill 
Got to go down the hill, across, up the other hill to get to the Mount of Olives. They're just hills. I understand they're mountains from a distance, but when you're walking it, they just look like hills. The in-between valley is called the Kidron Valley. The bottom of that is a brook, so it's called the Kidron Brook. The only reason that the author mentions it is because Kidron means murky and dark. Whenever the Bible author mentions something, it's usually for a reason. So they're saying, and now we are past midnight, leaving Jerusalem, and they cross that which is murky and dark, and they head to the Garden of Gethsemane. All right, we all tracking? Good. It says, and he took him across the brook Kidron, as was his custom, meaning they normally did this. This is the place where they hung out. To the Mount of Olives, where there was a garden. One describes it as an estate. A garden means a plot of land that was used for farming. Now, it was either walled or it was marked off, but it had an entrance, probably. And it was probably owned by a wealthy friend of theirs. Why? Because how many places can you go at one in the morning with a group of 11 men and not get hassled? You also have a guy who's wanted by the law. So you obviously have somebody that will allow you to come hang out in their space for private hangout time. That's where they were headed. A place called the Olive Press or Gethsemane, if you're familiar with that. Which he and his disciples entered super late at night. Got some pictures for you. Now, these are from uh, Pastor Matt Bach. He led a team on over. You can just scroll through these pictures. He led a team over there and took some photographs um, to Israel. And he tries to lead one every year, every other year, if you're interested in going over to Israel. But this is Gethsemane. This is what it looks like in the daytime. You got to remember, this is now at about 1230 at night or 1 a.m. So it's all pitch black. They're walking around through these areas, rocks. Some of them are beautiful. A lot of the trees that you're going to see are looking really old, and they are. But when Jerusalem sacked, was sacked by Rome in AD 70, they, they mowed those down. So these are all at least 2,000 years or younger. But still, you have this olive grove. The, what it meant was uh, you needed to get the olive oil. That was a huge commodity. So what you would do is you pick all the olives off the trees, throw them into a vat and crush them with a stone and out would leak all the oil. You'd scoop that up and then you would use that or sell that. That's kind of how it works. Is it an accident? Is it a coincidence that Jesus is going to get crushed in the place of crushing? Or is that not prophetic? You understand what I'm saying? All right. Two people do. Praise the Lord. Y'all awake? Okay, good. And when he came to that place, when he came to the entrance, he said to his disciples, of which he's going to refer to eight of them, there's 11 with him, but he's going to refer to eight of them. And he says, hey, guys, I want you to sit here at the entrance while I go over there to pray. Eight of them are going to run defense. He doesn't want anyone coming in and messing up his time. He needs special God time with the father. He needs time with his buddies. So he has eight stand guard. And then taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, meaning James and John, those three are called the inner three, kind of his crew. It says, he began to be sorrowful, greatly distressed, and troubled. All right. What does that mean? 
That's a Greek intensive way of saying everything's falling apart and breaking loose. The descriptions used of Jesus are extreme sorrow. But what was interesting in my studies is that the words actually reveal that it was anxiety, uncertainty, and terror. Now, that's not something you would normally think of. Why is that significant? Well, you all know that I wrote a book, right? And so the book is still going to be coming out. It's coming out in the spring. And it's called How to Live in Fear, Mastering the Art of Freaking Out. Okay? It's about anxiety. Right? Out of our crew here, I don't know if you deal with anxiety or not, but I do feel I am king of freaking out. I know what it's like to have something rush over you and you feel like you're going insane. You feel like everything is falling apart at the seams. You feel like all this fear and terror and all this comes upon you and you don't know why. You can't control it and you're crying out to God. I'm telling you, I know what that's like. And other people can see it wash over you when it hits. And I wonder how much his buddies were looking at him going, whoa. What's up with Jesus? Something's not right here. And he began to be terrified. He began to go through uncertainty. He began to go through challenge. You go, uncertainty? What are you talking about? This is Jesus. He knows the Father's will. Yeah, but does he know how in the world he's going to hang in there to get through it? No. Fear, uncertainty, worry, terror. Ah. What's intriguing is I got to ask you the question, why do you split up the team? Why do you break them up? I mean, he leaves eight at the entrance and he pulls three in. Why? Well, I don't know. We got some options, right? On why it is. I think they're all brilliant options. You can kind of make your own choice on this one. Is it possible that he brought those three in to teach them a lesson? What do I mean, teach them a lesson? I mean, let's look at who the three are that he brought in. Peter. James and John. What do you know about Peter? He's a loudmouth, right? Peter is cocky and he's kind of thinks he's all that. How do we know that? Because he's like, Jesus, here's the deal. Here's the deal. If everyone else wimps out on you, I'm all in. You know, and he was the guy that kept taking the charge and he was the guy that kept speaking for the team. He was the guy that thought that he could handle everything. He just told Jesus he would never deny him. And Jesus said, All right, how about you follow me in here for a second? Who are the other two, James and John? Do you remember their nickname as brothers, the sons of thunder? Why are they the sons of thunder? Because they're over the top. These are the guys that are just hardcore. They're like, man, you know what we should do? Just like pray down fire and burn everyone a lot. Jesus is like, uh, no, that's not what we're doing. Okay, sons of thunder recently had asked Jesus. They said, hey, can we sit when, when we go up to the kingdom? Can we sit on your right and left? Do you remember this? Because we want to be on the big, the big dog stage. And Jesus said, what do you... <laughs> First of all, that's not for me to dole out. That's for my father to dole out. Second of all, you really think you can handle what I'm going to walk through? Oh, yeah, totally we can. Hmm. All right. You two, come here. And he takes them into the garden. Was he teaching them a lesson of going, you want to know what leadership looks like? Watch this. And he just got crushed right in front of them. That's Christian leadership. Oh, brutal. Is it possible that he has brought them to share a deeper moment? Maybe these are his close buddies. 
Here's what we can be sure of. In his darkest hour, Jesus didn't only want the father there. He also wanted his friends there. I think that we're all slowly realizing we need other people, right? We need buddies. We need someone to be there with us, to pray with us. Is it possible that he brought them in merely because they were leaders? Because if you remember, the first one to die out of the team, the first one to get killed was James. He becomes the hallmark of what the rest of them were going to follow. He became an important figure. Did he need to be there to see that? Yeah. John is the youngest of the crew. He lives the longest and becomes the leader of the church after they're all gone. Does he need to be there? Yeah. But Peter was the leader the whole entire time. Does he need to be there? Yeah. Or is it possible, number four, that he just wanted someone to be there to record what was going on? To record the agony that he was going through. Why did he want someone to record that? Because it demonstrated how much he loves us. Because here's what I want you to hear for the rest of this message. Everything I'm about to tell you about the terrors and the difficulty and the hurt and the pain that Jesus went through, he went through for you. He went through for me. All that frustration, all that fear, all that hurt and pain, we haven't even got to the cross yet. Why would he do that? Because his love for his kids was so extreme, he didn't care what he would walk through to get there. I don't know, let me ask you, how much pain are you willing to endure for your children? Most of you would say, there is no limit. That's how Jesus felt. And he saw us in his mind. And he said, I will do this if it protects them. And so he walked the line. All right? Okay. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. That means deeply grieved. Even to death. Now, do you think Jesus is exaggerating to make a cool sermon illustration? Or do you think he's honestly talking to his friends? If he's talking to his friends, here's what he just said. I'm so messed up, I feel like I'm going to die. That's intense. I feel so messed up, I think I'm going to die. Therefore, guys, I need you to remain here. I want you to watch with me. And he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Okay. Quick question. Who are they praying for, him or them? Yes. Right? They're praying for him because he just said, I want you to pray for me. Right? Now, why would Jesus have his buddies pray for him if prayer doesn't matter? Right? Because we all keep playing this dumb game that prayer doesn't matter. Well, God's going to do what God's going to do, and it doesn't really matter, right? But what if God is brilliant enough to trigger his movement off your prayers? And you're not praying, so that's part of his plan. That he won't do it until you pray. My point is, prayer matters, and Jesus said prayer matters, because he just asked his buddies to pray over him right here, right now. And he would never ask that if it didn't matter, right? But they're also praying for themselves. He said, I want you to pray that you may not enter temptation. We talked about this a little bit last week about the weirdness about temptation and everything. But this little light bulb goes on over my head while I'm doing this prep. And trust me, it was a dim light bulb. It was, <laughs> it was not very bright. 
And the light bulb was this. Hmm, you got to pray before temptation hits. Okay, now here's the funny thing. You're all going, yeah, of course you do. Well, then why don't I? Here's when I normally pray about temptation. When I'm in it or when it's over. I don't pray beforehand. I don't do preemptive strike on temptation. And, and what I think Jesus is saying here is he's going, man, you're about to walk into some hardcore areas. You need to do an airstrike first with prayer. You need to go in, blow the entire thing out so you can actually walk into that without falling over and getting shot to death by the enemy. Pray beforehand, huh? And you go, how am I supposed to anticipate temptation? I don't know when temptation is going to hit. Seriously, you don't. Really? Because what, every day you get a brand new temptation? Wow, Satan's got your number, right? Because here's what happens with me. It's the same thing I've been wrestling with the last 40 years. Come on, really? You got brand new stuff where you're like, I have no idea. That never came up before. What? Selfishness? Pride? Hypocrisy? Come on, you don't know that? You didn't know lust was going to hit. You didn't have any idea, right? Because this stuff has never happened before. Maybe you do know it's going to come in, and maybe we need to be praying in anticipation of it because another bout is about to start, right? All right. Then he, it says, and he withdrew from them a little farther, about a stone's throw, so he's pr partly private. He prayed out loud and he knelt down and he fell on his face. That means sometimes he was on his knees, sometimes he just fell down before God. And he prayed aloud that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him, saying, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, combining that in. Only Mark tells us that. If it be possible, if it's allowable, let this trial, let this cup, let your wrath pass from me. All things are possible for you, Dad. You're the one in charge. If you're willing, if it's okay with you, remove this cup from me. Change the plan. Nevertheless, not my will, but what you will be done. Dad, I will submit to whatever your answer is. Okay, there's a couple things that are intense. What is he asking to happen? He's asking for a different plan. He knows he needs to what? Die for the sins of the world. But what he's asking, and maybe you've had this prayer before. Hey, Father, you are infinitely creative. I understand that your agenda is most important. I understand that the end result must always be your glory. But in your infinite creativity, you couldn't have thought of another way to get glory? It had to go like that? Seriously? That's what he's looking for. Dad, you're infinitely creative. You can do this redemption thing any way you want. Can't we figure out another route? But whatever you want, I'm all in. That right there has to soak into our hearts. What you want, I'm all in. It may not be what I want, but I know it's best. And I know it's right. Dr. Luke adds this. And there appeared to Jesus an angel from heaven strengthening him. Well, that's intriguing. 
Do you remember an angel showed up in the garden? When's the last time an angel showed up after his temptation? You remember that? Temptation in the desert, three years before this, an angel shows up and helps him out. And being in agony, Jesus prayed more intensely and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Does that mean super big sweat? Or does that mean the hematidrosis, right? That, that, that thing where you're stressing so much, you start blowing capillaries, and then um, the blood starts mixing with your sweat and it starts coming out of your forehead. You understand what I'm saying? Was it blood mixed with sweat or was it just super big sweat? I don't know, but Jesus is messed up. Can we agree with that? All right. And when he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping with sorrow because they'd been wiped out from a heavy day. And he said to Peter, Simon, what, are you still asleep? Why are you sleeping? You couldn't even watch with me one hour. And you're like, why is Jesus being so mean to this guy? Because Peter just said, dude, I'll go to death for you. I'm all in. I'm hardcore. And he's like, really? You're not even awake, dude. All I asked was you to hang out and pray for me and you keep caving. Okay, so let's reset our humility. I'm not quite sure you're as big and bad as you think you are. All right. Then he says to the boys collectively, get up, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation because tough times are coming. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Anybody ever feel like that in your prayer times? You really intend very well. You want to do a lot of stuff. Y'all... If I prayed as much as I wanted to pray, I would be awesome. I intend super good things. And there's times when I'm driving home from here. Y'all know I got a half hour commute everywhere. So I come out of this church fired up, right? And I'm like, yeah, you know what I'm going to do when I get home? I'm going to do like devotions and I'm going to do this and I'm do that. You know what happens if you're super hyper at church and then you sit for a half hour in your car? Dude, I literally get out of the car like this, right? I'm just zombified. I mean, I literally, I come in and the kids are like, hey, dad. I'm like, huh? And I just kind of lay down on the couch. So all I'm saying is that I intend super well. My body's not always backing me up on that one. Man, I'll go into prayer. I'm like, dude, I'm going to pray for like an hour. Ten minutes into it, I'm off onto something else in my mind. Right? All right. And again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed because he's not done yet. And he said the same words, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Why would he pray the same thing twice? Or, or is it different? Is he just trying to get his mind wrapped around it? What's happening here? I don't know. And again, he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they didn't know what to answer him. He's like, are you guys sleeping? They're like, I got nothing. <laughs> yes, I am. So he leaves. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Okay, I think this is critical right here. There are two ways to look at this. There's the way that I view, and then there's a way that's probably more backed up by Scripture. Either one is legit. Here's my view. I don't think the Father answered Jesus that night. Why? Why in the world would you pray three times the exact same thing if you got a clear answer the first time? Do you understand the first time you went away to pray, you prayed for an hour? Why would you pray it again? Well, maybe he's trying to change the father's mind. No, hold on. 
here's how Paul engaged with it. Paul said, I have a thorn in the flesh. I prayed for it three times for God to take it away. But then the father said, no. And I went, okay, I'm not going to pray about it anymore. When you get a clear directive, when you get a clear answer, you shut it down. You don't keep praying about it. You already know your answer. So why did he pray three times? I don't think he was getting anything. And to me, that gives me encouragement about all the times that I've prayed and I didn't hear anything. And I felt like I had to keep praying and praying and praying and nothing seemed to show up. But the silence was an answer, was it not? What was my last directive, my son? All right, we roll with that. If I didn't give you new information, you know what we need to do. The other way that may be better backed up by scripture is that maybe he did receive an answer and he was strengthened because by the time he walks out of this garden, he's composed, he's locked in and he's ready to go. He seems super put together. He is not the messed up mess that he was earlier, right? But here's how I read that. Prayer matters. Being with your buddies matters. Spending time with God matters. Re-racking matters. Because he came in a mess and he walked out strong. Too many of us just live our lives going from empty to empty. And we never recharge. And I don't think that's right. Then he came to his disciples a third time and he said to him, what are you guys still sleeping? Taking your rest? It's enough. Sleep and take your rest later on. Look, the hour has come. It's time. And the son of man is betrayed into the hands of unbelievers, sinners, enemies. Get up, rise. Let us be going to meet them. You see my betrayer. He's here. Okay, what's the point? No matter how horrific, Jesus would not stop saying, Father, it's all about you. I want what you want. I I don't know how to wrap my mind around it, Father. I don't know how I'm going to make this whole cross thing. I don't got it. I don't understand the idea that, Father, I'm not worried about the physical stuff. Yeah, I get it. They're going to beat me up. They're going to lash me 39 times. They're going to punch me in the face. What? I can handle that. They're going to do the whole crown of thorns, shove it down. And I get it. I'm going to balloon up and I don't even look like a human. I I know the prophecies. I get all that. I understand they're going to nail me to a piece of wood and I'm going to hang there until I can't breathe anymore. I, I, I understand that. That's actually not what's freaking me out. You know, what's freaking me out is being apart from you, dad. You see, the wrath of God comes against all that is evil. Does God hate evil? Yeah, why? Look what it does to his kids. He hates evil and he's not going to be cool with it. If he was cool with it, it would be a good thing. It's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. That's why he's mad. And all of God's wrath is hurtling to destroy evil. That's why he keeps going, hey guys... Will you trust me? Will you allow me to die for you? Trade your life so I can get you out of the way and put you over here in safetyville, right? I don't want any of that coming at you. It's not for you. It's for the yucky stuff. The only reason that he can move us out is because Jesus took the full hit in the chest of all that wrath. That's what's tripping him out. That's what he can't handle. The idea of the schism of the Trinity, that suddenly when all the force 
of God's wrath hits him in the chest. And for an instant, boom, the Trinity is schismed. He dies for the sin of the world. He's raised back. Yeah, he knows what's on the other side. But this is, this is the forever God. What happens on the cross just is unfathomable. That's why he can't handle it. So why did he do it? You? Me? He didn't do it for nice people. He did it for broken people. He did it for mean people. He did it for nasty people. He did it for selfish people. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. One of the things I like to share with people is that Jesus died for you on your worst day, and you probably even ha- haven't had your worst day yet. But he died for that. Should not glory rise that he's walking through all this for us? Hmm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good absolutely 100% you want the best for us you love us intensely you'll go to all sorts of extreme lengths to make sure that we're safe so God even in the worst of times Lord help us to begin to want what you want because it is right it is good it is best Help us to align our hearts with yours, to begin to hate what you hate, to begin to get into the program of understanding that we want the right thing. And then, and then, Father, as we do that, maybe we can start praying that way. Maybe we can start seeing power in our prayers. Maybe we start seeing answers because we actually want the right things. But God, it's more about your glory that in our hearts we would align and say, absolutely, Dad, whatever you want, we're all in. Father, help us to follow your son's example that Jesus, the way that you did it, I can't reach that. But Holy Spirit, with your help, I can become that. So I pray right now for all my friends and family here. Oh God, make us different. Change our hearts. Change our lives. And be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.